0: You are listening to the Coming Up for Air podcast hosted by Air Moms, Lori McDougall and Annie Highwater. This podcast is sponsored by alliesinrecovery.net. Coming Up for Air brings together two wonderful people, both of whose adult sons are in recovery from opiate addiction annie highwater and Lori mcdougall have been through years of their loved one's active addiction they have come to understand the direct link between taking care of yourself and being able to help your loved one during these conversations Lori and annie address the questions and concerns brought up by allies and recovery members and now coming up for air with Lori mcdougall and annie highwater
1: Welcome back to Coming Up for Air, everyone. And we are blessed this week to have Dr. Dominique present. Our topic this week is attaching versus detaching. I guess we could just get right into it. I see it all the time. I follow a lot of the support groups online, and I hear it in meetings, and I hear a lot of families, especially who are new to the issue in their family. What does it mean to detach, and how do I possibly detach from my loved one who is not only precious to me, but as they're spiraling? So welcome, Dr. Dominique, and I guess let's just get right into our topic.
2: When the the term attaching or detaching is used, my biggest problem with it, and, and I'll define it in a second, is that it's used in this very clunky way, as though... If you're a parent of a child that's using drugs in a problematic way, you have to detach. You have to just step away. And attaching is the opposite. So, and that's something that we do talk a lot about in craft is the notion that, yes, you you don't want to enable and attaching yourself to your loved one when they are using can be seen as enabling because you are in essence, a reward. You, you are making their life easier. You are normalizing their behavior. You're going about day to day acting as though nothing is terribly wrong. And therefore, your child is getting the message that his use is somehow okay. So the, the support groups and Al-Anon have all talked about detaching, walking away. Attaching is the opposite. Attaching is what you want to do in terms of the way craft uses it when your loved one is not using. And so you're always, in fact, the world, you could, you could see the world dividing in two. How is your child acting at this moment? Does he look high or does she not look high? If your child looks high, you would want to step away. You would want to detach. Very clearly what that means is physically leaving them alone Not in an angry way, but in a neutral way. You know, it just, uh, I don't feel comfortable right now. I have a feeling you're high. If you can say that without causing a big angry outburst. Can't you just say, look, um, you know, something just doesn't feel right. Right now, I'm going to go into my bedroom and we'll talk in the morning. And that's the extent of what I would want a family to do in terms of detaching, this idea of long period of time of detaching from somebody who's using until they somehow reach this theoretical bottom and ask for help and get sober. And then you can retach, right? That's the way this has always Mm -hmm. been talked about. I think is very harmful. And not only is it harmful in terms of the social cohesion of your family, but you as a family member, as a parent in the case you're describing, are the possible bringer of help. You want to be around when your child says, I've had enough, I'm tired of living this way. I don't know why I can't get off the couch. I don't know why I can't take a course. Everybody else is going off to college and I'm still sitting here at home. You want to be there in their lives, having fit, built a bridge with them so that they come to you, they feel okay coming to you, that you are open enough and you can provide details of health or your the treatment options that are open to them. So that's how we would want you to attach and detach moment by moment, day by day. Not this sweeping generalization as I'm you know, going to throw you out and come back when things have changed. Or are you going to do the opposite, which is keep them locked up in the house, yeah. <laughs> safe somehow from themselves in a way that perverses your relationship and doesn't make either of you healthy or happy. And it certainly doesn't stop the use. It's the policing, protecting, fixing syndrome that some families get into that they think that having them at home under their careful watch is somehow going to solve the issue. And you can probably talk to this because I'm sure this was One of several strategies you must have used with your son over the years.
1: Yeah, it was a learning curve. And I actually wrote an entire chapter about it in my second book, Unbroken. I called it Don't Just Tell Me to Detach. Because I remember I turned to the people who had been my typical support system just in the avenues of life who were not schooled in addiction, had not experienced it. And I kept getting that message and advice. And it was, you know, open-ended advice. I didn't understand it. And one of them that one person that was giving me that advice had a three-year-old tucked into bed every night. And here was my only son, eighteen or nineteen years old. You know, he was so thin, you could see his teeth through his cheeks. He was sleeping at different homes. At one point he was sleeping in a dugout and I she would say, just detach from him as if it was casual, as if it was a boyfriend I could just write off. And I remember looking the word detach up and saying, tell me how I do this. Tell me how as my son is spiraling, I just have nothing to do with him or anything in his life. And I was so new to the crisis. I would have done anything that I thought would work, but I just didn't know how to make that work. And then I would find myself going to visit him or spending time with him or checking on him and lying to her about it because, I felt like I was running back to a boyfriend that had mistreated me and she would judge me. I mean it was insanity. And you know, when somebody's addicted it makes everyone in the orbit of them crazy until you start to kind of stabilize. So I would seek advice from people that really just didn't know even if they, you know, they were well meaning, they really just didn't know. And I tried that detach. I, I I couldn't do it for very long. I wasn't going to just turn my back and cut off communication. What I ended up saying was I would try to keep things pleasant and positive and provide him with information. He could call himself to get into treatment or to call in crisis. And I would say, you can't have access to the home. I'm not going to provide certain things for you. However, I know the condition you're in. If you want to go to treatment, I will drop everything I'm doing. I will drive a hundred miles an hour to get to you and get you there. I'm on board. I'm in your corner with that. And that became the picture of detaching for me. But in the in the early days of it, being kind of told to disassociate with him, I just don't, didn't see how as a mom, especially, that was possible. And I agree with your point. It's not a sweeping, general, all or nothing, once and done thing that you do. It is as needed. Right. So you, you
2: we're both talking about sort of the, the physical detaching that yeah. is often uh, suggested to parents and to partners too, but parents especially. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that emotional side of detaching, which is the other piece of this, right? You're supposed to somehow emotionally forget or somehow put in the back of your mind, your son, that you have now physically uh, pushed away.
1: Yeah, this was, and this was, you know, seven or eight years ago that we were in the worst of it. And I always kind of compare it to what my mind would go through had he been kidnapped. And you're imagining, you your mind imagines the primal fear of everything possible that could be happening to your child. So I wasn't able to just disengage my mind and do laundry. And go to the grocery store and navigate traffic and not have this monster on my mind and detach from him. I I was still in the process where we were thrust into the situation and I had to know he was okay at some point every day. And sometimes when you're in the situation, you'll go a span of time and have no idea where they are. There's no answer. And that was torment. So... The emotional side of it is probably about the worst fear I can describe, combined with sorrow and nostalgia, and it makes you absolutely climb the walls crazy.
2: So as a parent, how do you come to terms with that feeling? Let's put detaching aside. Let's just talk about they didn't come home, or you don't know where they are, and it's day three. You haven't heard from them. They haven't called you. What do you do with that?
1: Well, I don't know that you ever get really good at it. I had to turn to faith, meditation, certain tactics, you know, dialectical behavior therapy helped me. I had been given really great advice once where in the midst of uncertainty and turmoil, somebody had said to me, do the next right thing for the next 15 minutes over and over again. And I really lived breath to breath and 15 minutes at a time. on the worst days of it. So that was really how I got through. And a lot of times what I considered crisis or urgent really played out and it wasn't as much of an urgency as I thought, or it ended up coming full circle and calming down because these things tend to go in cycles. But my mind and my heart would jump on board with the roller coaster. So I had to tend to a lot of my freakouts in the midst of that. I think that's what you do as a parent. You just kind of figure out strategies to pull yourself into sanity.
2: So the you mentioned dialectical behavioral therapy, which is a a system of incorporates cognitive behavioral therapy and then some mindfulness training. I'm wondering if you have a good sense of how you make things even worse in your mind. Say your son is gone for two days. What is it that you're doing? That okay, you don't know what's going on. That's the evidence, that's the truth of it. You simply don't know what's going on. What is it your mind is telling you?
1: Worst case scenario. He's arrested, he's these- dead, he's kidnapped, he's held hostage, he owes drug money, he's having, you know, terrible things done to him, he's being assaulted somehow. It was it was every worst possible case. And that's, that's what many
2: of the families on our site are dealing with—is mm-hmm. is that sort of runaway train of, of the mind,
1: and it's a chain reaction. And once it once it takes off, it's—I could not control my emotions until I bottomed out, or would force myself to fall asleep for a while. So the DBT, the dialectical therapy, was very helpful. Or going to a meeting, or. Calling somebody who was safe and knew how to handle me in those moments. I couldn't just call a friend who had no idea and would say, oh, I'm sure it's this or that. Or, you know, if you were casual with me or you gave me the wrong advice because I was so raw and because my heart was surging so with so much fire and terror, I just, I couldn't handle anybody saying the wrong thing to me. I just kind of had to hold the hemorrhaging in close and get through it with as much hope as possible. Right. And those were in the worst of the days, and it does come full circle, but I know that's what parents go through. You absolutely are in the fear. You believe you're on the clock against your son's or daughter's death, and it's the constant monkey on your back. But I did have a nurse- What? I'm sorry. led you down some dark places. But I had a nurse say to me, and I repeat it often because it was such a a freeing thought. She said, just like you cannot run beside every car he's in to make sure he's not in an accident, you can't run beside his life to make sure this doesn't go bad, to make sure it's not a drug overdose or, you know, that something doesn't happen to him related to this opiate problem. And she was right. So I had to kind of take my hands off of it and say, how's this going to play out today? However it plays out today, I'm going to get through this day and find and make peace in the middle of it, and I'm going to give him an outpouring of love and encouragement, you know, not in a sick, codependent, gross way, but loving and healthy as much as I can when I talk to him, encouraging him always toward treatment and betterment, and then I'm going to take my hands off the the mess. I can't look at the mess.
2: Because if you look at the mess, then you can't handle him when you do see him. You're exhausted. You're at an emotional end, bottom yeah. yourself from, from what you've been doing to yourself in your thoughts with your fear for however long you haven't known where, where he was. And so if, if you respond to him upon seeing him in that state of mind, you're not going to be able to manage him very well.
1: Right. That's right. Before we go on, I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge our sponsor, Allies in Recovery. Since 2002, Allies has been helping families like yours and like mine cope with the substance use of a loved one. Join Allies in Recovery today and you'll have access to a wealth of information, strategies, and community to help you navigate the minefield of addiction. That's alliesinrecovery.net. Now back to the show. I actually asked um, a couple of parents to define who have had some success in their own process of maintaining peace to define their, to give me their definition of detaching. So I just wanted to read a couple of them because I thought it was so interesting. One mom said, it means we can't do it for someone else. That was her definition of detaching. I'm not saying these are right or wrong. I just, I loved these open answers. Another parent said, to detach means to choose peace quiet and tranquility over chaos and drama. Another said, I detach by letting go of my daughter so she can figure out her life, respecting her enough to allow her to get the victory and dignity of working it out. No matter how dreadful things seem, both of us need to find a healthy place. And the last one said, knowing my place, which isn't to micromanage anyone's life but my own.
2: Excellent. I I like all of them very much. And the idea that somehow you have to find... Your center and your calm in the midst of, as you say, these cycles, how things go full round over and over again, um, is an imperative, right? And if, yeah. if you can't find your calm, you're not able to manage yourself or or your loved one very well. So that's that's the idea of uh, in a good way of detaching not micromanaging, allowing them the dignity of finding their own way of making their own mistakes. It's really key to being two independent adults in the situation, not no longer mother-child, right?
1: Yeah. So if I were to call you in the midst of that, what advice would you give me, say, if I were to call you when I knew my son was sleeping in a dugout and I was just heartbroken over it, how would you tell me to attach in the midst of that?
2: Well, if he's sleeping in a dugout as a consequence of his using, which I'm sure is the case, right? He's out of money, he's out of friends, no more sofas, no more yeah. drugs. And, you know, he's, he's now literally in a dugout. Unless there's a danger to it, I would say, you know, this is not a harmful consequence. This is one that he can feel. He can feel the rocks under him. He can feel the loneliness of, of where his actions have taken him. It's okay to let him feel this. Right. You just need to hang tight and let him have this experience. This is part of your work as a a parent is to get out of the way when they've been using and detach. I want you to keep detaching. The moment you feel there's danger, if it's minus 20 for Christ's sake, of course you're not gonna leave them in the dugout. But if there's no danger, then I want him to feel all of the reaction of the circumstances of what he's done to put himself in this place in his life, because you just don't know which one of these feelings, which one of these episodes are going to make the difference to him, are going to hit him in a way that nothing has hit him before and says to his mind says to himself, wow, this is where these drugs are taking. I am never going to this place again. I am going to do what I can to pull out. You want him to have that in his head. You want him to experience the the bad things that happen when you use drugs or drink as long as they're not dangerous, so that he has as many of these bad thoughts as possible.
1: I love that. I love how you say it's an experience, because one thing I think we don't understand is, you know, maybe the situation right now is not permanent. I came up with a catchphrase in the middle of it, you know, and pardon the grammar, but we would say it all the time, and I tell a lot of parents this, it ain't over yet. They're in this experience right now, whether it's a dugout or a jail cell, it's not over yet. It, it's not over till it's over. And they. It, this is just another piece of what they're going through. And I think that's such great reassurance when you say, let them feel this. Let them have this experience. Yes.
2: Don't take it away from them. Don't raise it up. Don't make it more comfortable. Don't go in and bring him chicken soup. Don't do any of it. Let him be. He'll wake up in the morning. He'll be in withdrawals or hungover. He'll have a pasty mouth. He'll, he'll think, I, where, where is this stuff taking me?" Right? That is what you want him to think. Don't take that away from him.
1: I love that. Now, what if I were to call you and say, it's been two or three days. He's not returning my calls or my text, His phone is going to voicemail. How do I detach, attach in that case? and which has happened. I know how we got through it, not always in a pretty fashion, but what's the advice then to somebody who's kind of surging in the silence? Right.
2: So I, I would say two things. I would say, one, has this happened before? And what happened? Was he okay in the end? You know, your your mind is going to tell you that it's the worst possible situation and he is in a ditch or, or somehow injured or somehow kidnapped. But has it happened before? What typically happens when he goes missing like this for two or three days? Can you answer that? What, what used to happen to him when he would do that? What, what was up?
1: Um, the first time, I think I just had a panic attack because it was the first time. And it happened a few times. And I would panic every time. But then he would always resurface when he was done either being irritated with me or being off in whatever neverland he was experiencing so he would always return worse for the wear
2: okay but not in any of the dire situations your mind had come up with so not past,
1: never one time he no, was on a canoeing actually, trip and one time i was kind of hoping he had been arrested because i was i had the mindset he has to hate his life more than i do so i kind of hope he gets his bell rung with misery so that he once out of it. So I was kind of hoping that was the case but he had just been, you know, sleeping over at a friend's house and intentionally ignoring me. So then I was not fearful, I was furious. So it was usually something yeah. like that.
2: So, Annie, in the future, you know, if this were to happen again, I would say as a friend I would say to you, "Okay, let's give it those 2 to 3 days because we know what he's done before. He's he's been inconsiderate, he's been rude, he's been angry at you and then he's irritated when when you get all upset because he's missing for a few days, he just doesn't understand it. So if it goes two or three days, I want you to hang on to yourself, say to yourself, this is what has happened before. It is happening again. I need to do everything I can to take care of myself during this time. If it goes beyond three days, then we, we go into plan B, which is okay. Maybe it's something more than has been in the past. You know, you have to find the evidence. You have to find not what your mind is is dreaming up is happening, but something to hook into that is your experience. What is your experience with your son? What has your son done in the past when he's gone missing like this? You know, I have often, I hear families and one of the hardest things in the world is to respond to the idea, oh my God, he's going to kill himself. Well, has he ever tried it? No, but he could. Well, what is the evidence that he could? Have you heard him talk about a plan? You know, you you really do have to sort of, like like an attorney, tease apart what is your fear with what is the evidence? What have you learned from your experience thus far? What do you know him? And and what do you know about him and what is he most likely to be doing? You know, the idea that somehow out of the blue he's going to commit suicide is your fear. You've got to get a hold of yourself. you got to remember yeah. who you're talking about.
1: Yeah. I would had actually, a, I had this friend who had come into my life during the worst of it. She was a family therapist in the court system. She was kind of like Yoda to me. And I would call her with situations and she had written down on a post-it note for me, three questions to ask myself when I would be surging with that fear, whether I was at work or wherever. And I put it on all my computers and it said that it was, what am I feeling? What can I do? What am I going to do? And I remember thinking those didn't really apply to the situation I was in, but I kind of forced them to apply. And they also forced me to calm down and step back until I was chemically different and emotionally different and not, you know, crazed. So I would think, what am I feeling? Fearful. Afraid, angry, hasty—all of these things. What can I do? I, I'm, I can really do nothing about. It. I don't have information, or I can try to accumulate some information. What am I going to do? And then it would kind of cause me to step into place with order, and it would bring my mind and my emotions into order. So that was one tactic I had when I would be off the rails with fear in those times of silence. So I think whatever you have in place to take care of yourself, and like you said, calling a friend, and then grasping onto something stable. Who am I dealing with? What's been the pattern? That's so smart.
2: Yeah, it has to be. It's all we've got, really. I mean, what are you going to do? Go down
1: alleyways looking for him? Well, sometimes. (laughs) I know you've tried. (laughs) That worked out well. Never. Um, Never works out well. Never. The
2: idea from a craft perspective is for you to get a hold of yourself. You need to get a hold of yourself because he is going to turn up either on a phone or a text or in person. And I want you to not flip out on him when he comes home or when you finally talk to him, because that will just bring up everything again that is hard between you, create conflict and nothing will resolve itself.
1: And let's just take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by CCSHM, the Community Coalition
2: for a Safe and Healthy Morris, whose mission is to prevent and reduce substance use throughout the lifespan through collaboration, education, and community-wide change. CCSHM partners with CARES, the Center for Addiction Recovery, Education, and Success, to bring prevention and recovery services to communities throughout Morris County and New Jersey. CCSHM and CARES are projects of Morris County prevention is key. Go to safehealthymorris.org or caresnj.org or call 973-625-1998. I want you to use some communication skills like we, we use in in craft and it's I believe module three or four, but some very simple things. So rather than where the hell have you been, right? I want you to start with an I statement about how you feel. What, what, what
1: might you say to him? I'm very blunt. So sometimes I would say, I feel like wringing your neck. I feel afraid. I feel abandoned. Yeah. You know, all of those things. I was pretty real about it. But I think toning it down and saying, I felt extremely worried and concerned." You know, putting it in that um, yes. to understate. I, it, for me, it's better to understate rather than overstate and overreact. So I think putting it in real vanilla terms was helpful because it, it caused yeah. him to respond. When you're flaring at somebody, all you're doing is call, bringing out the worst in them or shutting them down. So you're not going to get anywhere doing that. I never, ever got anywhere doing that.
2: You could keep talking
1: at this point to him
2: or you could just put a period after that and walk away. Yeah. What would it be like to put a period after it and walk away?
1: I would have to deal with that suffocating feeling inside myself, which eventually I had to deal with anyway. So I should have dealt with it sooner. But it was a learning curve for so, us.
2: Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really hard to do, but it's really different than what he's expecting.
1: Yeah. And it really I affects change
2: and concerned
1: you know one time I did ask him sometimes asking him questions would cause him to realize truth and I remember asking him you know when your dog doesn't return what what does that make you feel like or even when you realize you've left your cell phone and you're patting your pants down and it's not in your pockets what are you feeling and that times about a million added to adrenaline and fear and sleeplessness is what I feel when I don't hear from you and then leave it at that period it's not something I should repeat over and over. But, you know, back in the early years of it, I would try to force my point and force myself to be heard and understood so he'd get it. But that was really just making me sick. Did he get it? Not usually. He would act like it sometimes just to end the conversation.
2: Well, he's, he comes home, you know, if you're, if you're going to meet him at the door, get on the phone with him while he's still high. Or
1: wants, wants to be high.
2: He didn't get high. He's even more frustrated. You don't want to try to get important points like that across when, when they're already irritated or angry and you're really, you know, a thousand um, miles an hour in your head. It's just not a good time to say what you just said. But I, I loved what you just said. Think about what it's like losing your dog, going out to the curb and not seeing him there where you tied him up. Now multiply that times a thousand and throw in, you know, mm-hmm. cortisol rushing through the, the system. And, and that's what it feels like when I don't hear from you. I would say that the next day. I wouldn't say it to him while, you know, he's still in whatever state he's in and it's late and you're, you're both, you know, exhausted from the whole thing. I would sit down calmly the next day and say, you know what? I just need you to hear me for just two seconds. This is what it feels like.
1: Yeah, and he did get that explanation because it was personal and it hit home. But when I would come at him differently, he one time he told me, "I hear you like the Charlie Brown teachers, like wah wah wah." You know, I just wait for it to end so I can move away from the conversation. And it was a lot more effective when I could make it personal and I could make humanize who he was, even in the midst of how I felt about what was going on.
2: So detaching has a lot of different
1: nuances
2: to it right yeah and it's not for six months it's detaching while they're high in the um, moment right before they're getting high when you can't turn it around and when they're withdrawing or hungover you do not want to be again feeding them chicken soup on a hangover you know it's going to be okay darling i'm sure you didn't mean it you know let me feed you it'll it'll make you feel less nauseous you know you don't want to be doing any of that stuff right that's the moments for detaching and then the, the important piece that you write about and that I write about in craft is attaching. When do you want to step in? In anybody's alcohol or drug career, there are moments when they're not using. They may be far and few, but there are moments. And maybe it's that night after, the evening after he's come home after two, three days. You know, he decides to stay home. You know, that would not be a, a time to continue to rail on him for having been gone for two days. In the moment, he's home, he's not using, you're both home, that would be a moment to attach, to step in, right? To, to say, hey, I'm glad you're home and I'm glad you're, you're, you're looking good and, and I'm wondering, you know, maybe we should get a pizza brought in or, you know, what, whatever he enjoys or whatever the two of you enjoy together. And that's just as important as stepping away, right? Stepping away and detaching in the moment when you know they're high and attaching and stepping in when you know they're not. You're not gonna get it right every time you're not going to even get it right 80% of the time. You're not going to check with them to say, you know, excuse me, are you sure you're not high because I'm about to attach? You're just going to have to right. put all of your observations, your experience, and what your gut's saying, and everything you know about his use the day of the week. It's, it's a weeknight. He usually doesn't use until, you know, on a Sunday night because he likes to, he needs to get up early the next day. Whatever you know about his patterns. And you're going to sum it up and say, okay, My my hunch is he's not using, therefore I'm going to attach and step in.
1: He could go hiking and that was always a Sunday activity that we did. And he's My son is six years into his recovery and he, to this day, hikes almost every Sunday, sometimes for a full weekend. And those were those things that you're sowing seeds and that's really powerful because you don't plant an acorn and go out two days later and say, where's my oak tree? These things are a process and they take time. And a lot of the things that I sowed into him during the midst of it that I thought were doing no good, I'm seeing the fruition of them now. I went out to visit him in Malibu and there's a place that he loves to hike. So he took me up over this area. There's a dune and there were all these rocks and these seals gather. And he said, I brought you here to show you this is a meaningful place for me. They gather and they scrape the barnacles off on these rocks and then they continue on their journey. And I've come here on the weekends and watched this. And it makes me think of how we come to a place, a stable place where we pull away from everyone and we just remove all the junk that's on us. But then we continue on. We don't stay there. And I thought, gosh, this kid's getting it. All these things, you know, in the worst of those years, and and I remember thinking, I taught you how to read, and I put you in private school, and I took you hiking, and I sewed important things into you, certain tastes for music, and books, and literature, and knowledge, and metaphors of life, and none of it mattered, and I'm seeing none of it. You don't even hear accountability on a basic level, let alone appreciate any of these things. And I just remember thinking everything's futile. Nothing works. I'm in a panic, but we're some years on the other side of that. And you really can't see around the corner of the hope of the effort you put in. And now every single thing I sowed into him is presenting on this side of recovery. So those things do work. That love you give does work. work.
2: Yes. And, And, you know, so many of our parents don't see that. You take away the alcohol and the drugs, finally, and they don't snap back into these wonderful human beings immediately. Right. It takes time for them to, to clear the spider webs and the, the debris of, of what they've been going through for however long. It takes a while for them to recover their their physical health, and they do become the people that you knew them to be you know for the most part i you know alcohol and drugs does not make you a bad person it doesn't make you a good person but if you were a good person you will recover and become a good person again you will have those urges those interests those activities those those that curiosity that your parents gave you
1: it's still there but as you say they're still there. They're, they were just covered up and, and it just takes
2: takes time.
1: One thing I would always, I always told my son that he mattered. You, you matter. The dreams that you had for yourself, those still matter. Those don't stop mattering. And one thing my son was so good at was baseball. He grew up hitting grand slams and home runs practically you know, every team he ever played on. And then he lived in a dugout and it was so ironic. And he would talk about how he slept in this dugout and remembered stepping out of it to hit a grand slam. And it was a dugout he was sleeping in when he was down to nothing and no one. And, you know, he called me this Sunday and he said, Hey, I just wanted you to know I played softball again um, in Scottsdale and I hit an out of the park home run over a 325 foot fence. I mean, we're full circle and that doesn't mean he couldn't relapse. We're aware of that. But, you know, we're six years into this thing. We've had some momentum of healing and growth and a lot of that debris has gone away. And that, that effort that people put in and sewed into the fact that you matter, you are addiction is your experience. It's not your identity and it doesn't have to be your permanent, your future. It's really, it's come full circle. Those things all, those things all have panned out.
2: That's wonderful. I'm so, I'm so happy for you. You
1: know, especially as a single mom, I think that
2: there's, there's so much weight on you. It's just such a, I just was at a a forum this week and there were three moms. I have to say the moms, the, the, the relationship between mother and child is, is the strongest I have ever, ever experienced and seen in when there's addiction around, it it takes over. It's very hard to get your center. Very hard to follow simple directions and and, and to keep it keep it up and be consistent with it. I've got yeah, to say, you did in the
1: that. yeah, and you know, I, yeah. and I can say I failed a lot too because there were times that I knew all these tools and I knew the rules of the game and what was affect a better outcome. And sometimes I blew it and lost it anyway, because this was this kid. You know, I've I've never had a person come along my life that I could not, if it was an unhealthy situation, just cut off forever and walk away from. But when it came to this son, it changed the game and it changed how I handled and saw everything. And I had to almost be led through it at first until I got stronger because it affects you so profoundly. But there's hope and the, and the process works and craft works and the love you sow into them and the truth you speak in a calm, kind manner. It does, it's not for nothing. And it, it may just seem like nothing's happening now, but it's like weight loss. It's like going to the gym and watching what you put in your mouth and it doesn't show in two days. But in a couple of weeks, that ship starts turning and things can and will improve. I agree. It's a big, huge, clunky ship,
2: but it does turn.
1: It does. And that's about all I got. Until next time, thanks so much, Dominique. You're welcome. Bye-bye.
0: Thank you for listening to this Coming Up for Air podcast with Annie Highwater and Lori McDougall. If you're interested in reading Annie's book, Unhooked, A Mother's Story of Unhitching from the Roller Coaster of Her Son's Addiction, it's available online. Or you can simply follow the link at the bottom of one of Annie's blog posts on alliesinrecovery.net. Coming Up for Air is sponsored by Allies in Recovery, the online home for families facing the addiction of a loved one. Allies in Recovery can help you understand your loved one's struggle and offers effective communication strategies that encourage treatment and discourage use. In addition to interactive e-learning, Allies in Recovery offers expert advice, podcasts, tools for evaluating treatment options, recent news items, and access to a large community of families coping with issues similar to yours. Join alliesinrecovery.net today. That's alliesinrecovery, all one word, dot net. Thank you for listening. Our theme music was performed and composed by cellist. Eric Corey.